Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Bridget. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show dedicated to policy analysis and international affairs. In today's episode, we explore the security, trade, and diplomatic implications of climate change in Canada's Arctic. As you may have noticed in the news recently, the Arctic is a region that's quickly heating up. This is largely, but not entirely, due to climate change. Changes in the Arctic are impacting communities across the Arctic region, as well as the eight Arctic states. Canada, Norway, Russia, the United States, Denmark, through Greenland, Finland, Iceland, and Sweden. These countries are members of the Arctic Council, founded in 1996, which facilitates cooperation on Arctic issues. The Arctic consists of a mix of land, internal waters, territorial seas, exclusive economic zones, and high seas or international waters. International law regarding seas and oceans is codified within the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Which parts of the Arctic belong to which country is still up for some debate. In particular, Canada and Russia have had competing claims over an extended continental shelf, and this area includes the geographic North Pole, so it's pretty important. Significantly, Canada has claimed the Northwest Passage as part of its internal waters, allowing it to regulate access through the region. However, the United States and other Arctic countries treat this as an international strait. Now, the Arctic region is not just ice, but actually holds a number of valuable resources. Most notable are considerable oil and gas reserves that have largely been untapped due to hazardous conditions. These reserves are estimated to potentially be 30% of the world's oil and gas supply. There are also reserves of valuable metals such as iron and nickel. Gold and diamonds are also present within the Arctic Circle and are already being mined. Increased ice thaw in the region due to climate change means that these resources are becoming more accessible to states and has led to an increased drive by Arctic states to exploit these resources through mining and drilling, both on and offshore. Additionally, ice is becoming thinner during the winter months meaning that shipping routes to the Arctic are viable for longer portions of the year for commercial interests. The impact of these changes are already becoming apparent as a Russian gas tanker managed to complete the northern sea route from Norway to South Korea without the aid of icebreakers for the first time in August of 2017. To talk about the impacts of these trends on international relations and policy, we spoke with Arctic expert Victoria Herman. Victoria Herman is the President and Managing Director of the Arctic Institute. Her research and writing focuses on climate change, community adaptation, human development, and resource economies with a particular focus on Arctic oil and gas. She is a Gates Scholar at the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge, where she is pursuing a PhD in Political Geography of the Arctic. Victoria holds a master's degree from our very own Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, as well as a bachelor's in international relations and art history from Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. So with us here in the studio today, we have Victoria Herman. Thank you very much for coming on our show today. Thanks for having me. So we'll begin by laying a bit of the context here. Could you just explain a little bit how the Arctic has been historically important to Canada and just in general? 
Sure. So the the Arctic is incredibly important to Canada historically, economically, ideology, geographically. Uh, I mean, if if we look just at Canada as a land map, over 40% is within the Arctic. So just by geography, Canada is connected to the Arctic. And that really starts um, before Canada becomes an independent country with English exploration uh, across the Arctic. At first, that is an, as an attempt to colonize it and then eventually just for exploration. And Canada continues that um, in an attempt to exert its own identity as a nation state um, and show the world that they too are capable of uh, having national expeditions to last frontiers. So they they kind of continue that trend in the early 20th century. Uh, And as Canada grows as a nation, um, they bring the Arctic closer to their national identity. You can see that pretty clearly today in Canada's national anthem, um, the Great North. There are lots of symbols of how Canada has pulled the Arctic closer and closer to who they are as a country and who they purport themselves to be on the the national stage. And that easily easily translates into Canada's sovereign claims. Um, So beyond that national identity that binds the nation together and makes it unique in North America being, you know, the northern country of the continent, um, it's also important for its claim as an Arctic state to be in governance bodies like the Arctic Council, and to stake a claim in the Arctic economically um, and politically as it's seen changes today. Going into that, can you explain a little bit more how this exertion of identity is playing out in the Arctic Council, um, specifically Canada's representation of its own claims and how that's affecting diplomatic relations with other nation states? Definitely. So uh, just as a, a brief background. The Arctic Council is the governance body of the Arctic region. It is a regional forum where the eight Arctic countries and five permanent participants, and those are indigenous peoples, representative groups, can come together and make uh, either binding decisions. Uh, Today, there are currently three of those, uh, or more frequently, as a forum to discuss issues that are currently playing out in the region, whether that's Uh, climate change adaptation and mitigation or um, biology conservation efforts. Um, And that was created in the the 1990s when the uh, Cold War was over and a a new geopolitical era was being ushered in uh, where there was a need for cooperation rather than conflict in the Arctic. Uh, in Canada, uh, Ottawa was actually the place where all of that came together in 1996 with the Ottawa Declaration, um, and that was the creation of the Arctic Council. So Canada plays a huge role in the creation of that governance body, and today uh, Canada is a continued member, as is many Indigenous groups that are within Canada, like the Inuit Circumpolar Council. Um, And Canada, although it won't see the chairmanship, the head of the Arctic Council for a number of years now, it was um, the chair in 2013 to 2015. Um, So within its chairmanship, it actually created uh, a sub-council in addition to the Arctic Council called the 
Arctic Economic Council where more economic issues um, could be discussed and deliberated on. So Canada is certainly still um, a big a player in convening people and moving Arctic conversations forward. How would you compare Canada's role in the Arctic Council compared to other roles it has played in international situations? For example, do you see Canada as much more of a leader in this space, especially with the Arctic Economic Council and creation of other subcommittees and having more say in bioconservatism and environmental policy as a whole? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that Canada, by nature of the Arctic Council being a uh, a more restrictive group insofar as how many countries are able to be at the table and how many indigenous groups are able to be at the table, um, Canada can play an outsized role. Um, and also, again, geographically, the Canadian Arctic does make up a significant proportion of the Arctic as a region and also in the North American Arctic. When you compare it with the United States, who does not have as strong an Arctic identity or an Arctic national policy as Canada. You could see Canada really putting itself forward as the Arctic power in North America. Um, and that's not just in terms of sovereignty claims and, and economic uh, issues, but, but also just as a, a force that provides search and rescue um, that is being a leader in how it brings Indigenous voices to the table and elevates them um, in a way that other countries are not leaders in. And I think it's important here to underscore something that you said earlier about the nature of Arctic governance being or lending itself to cooperation rather than conflict. And I think that does definitely play into how Canada and other states interact through the Arctic Council. So that was interesting to hear. Yeah, it really is. And I think that there is a, a perception maybe from media narratives or from uh, events going on elsewhere in the world that the Arctic is kind of a hot spot for a new Cold War or, um, you know, an area that is fraught with more militaristic or security tensions. And while there are certainly security issues in the Arctic, cooperation really has prevailed since the 1990s, and that continues on today um, with Russia and Western countries in spite of other issues going on. And we saw this um, a few years ago with um, Crimea that uh, there, there was still a continuance of cooperation between all eight Arctic countries, um, and they were able to come together and agree on a, a new binding agreement this, just this past year on scientific cooperation. So while, as you say, uh, it might be a bit surprising, the Arctic right now really is continually a place where countries can come together, discuss, and and move forward. And within that context, uh, another thing that makes it a bit unique is the place of Indigenous voices in the conversation. Nowhere else in governance bodies do you have such a prominent role in an elevation of Indigenous groups. And that really makes the Arctic Council a, a pioneer in its field. And I think it's been for the betterment of the whole region that these discussions and these decisions aren't just made by nation states, but are made by all nations that call the Arctic home. Absolutely. 
And as you said before, the Arctic is heating up, and uh, a lot of that has to do with climate change, which is literally heating <laughs> up the Arctic. So would you discuss just a little bit how climate change is transforming not just the physical landscape, but also the political landscape in the Arctic? Yeah, so climate change is the the global warming aspect of climate change is happening twice as fast in the Arctic as the global average is. Um, and what that equates to um, is impacts like a reduction in summer sea ice. Um, you see shore fast ice melting along the coastlines and not gaining back in the winter. Um, you see permafrost, so the ground that is frozen, starting to thaw, which is creating hazards for people's homes, for infrastructure, and releasing even more greenhouse gases and adding to the impacts of climate change. So there's tons of very varied and very significant changes that are occurring on the land and in the ocean across the Arctic region. Um, and that has a number of far-reaching consequences. The, the first and foremost is really the human consequence of climate change. So as all of these changes are taking place, you have to remember that 4 million people call the Arctic home. So they are witnessing this in real time. And that means that road infrastructure is being made insecure. People's homes are falling into the ocean, are being compromised because of erosion trends, because that ice isn't there when storms roll into buffer. It just comes up into villages. And there are public health consequences of new diseases reaching further north as you have insect vectors reaching higher and higher latitudes. So the, the first issue here really is the, the human one. And then I, I would move on to the economic consequences, both positive and negative, of uh, climate change in the north. So just this past year, you had the, the second inaugural um, passage of a luxury cruise liner through the Arctic, uh, going around Alaska and then down through the Canadian Arctic, um, things that you've never seen before. And so there are opportunities for tourism to uh, bring in new economies um, and revitalize traditional economies in many Arctic communities. Um, but there isn't an infrastructure for that yet. Um, so there are a lot of opportunities to bring in more money. Um, and I I'm sure we'll talk a bit about shipping later, um, but that is another big uh, economic topic in the Arctic um, and can be seen as both an opportunity and a challenge for as the, the climate is changing what to do with a, a transforming north. We'll have more with Victoria Herman after a short break. You're listening to Policy Talks podcast recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. Um, I think uh, my former foreign minister was pretty clear uh, about uh, about Canada's displeasure with the uh, with the um, the Russian stunt. I think that would be the best way to put it. Um, President Putin assured me that uh, he meant uh, no offense nor any uh, 
nor any intention to violate any uh, international understanding or any Canadian sovereignty in any way. And uh, uh, needless to say, I always listen carefully when Mr. Putin speaks. That was former Prime Minister Stephen Harper answering a question as a guest of the Council of Foreign Relations back in 2007. He refers to an incident during a Russian expedition that same year that saw a Russian flag planted on the seabed of the North Pole. During the Harper administration, defending Arctic sovereignty was one of the driving motivations for the purchase of a Lockheed Martin F-35 Lightning IIs. Along with controversy surrounding their actual utility, the protracted procurement process became a major embarrassment for the Harper administration. And in 2015, current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau ran on a campaign promising to axe the deal. So, actually going right into shipping, mm-hmm. how has the sub-council and the, for the Arctic Economic Council, how has that determined shipping routes and navigated these ever-changing environmental scenarios and who can sail where and who owns what or who doesn't own what? So, most of the, the Arctic is actually within countries' um, sovereign uh, maritime uh, expanse, whether that's through their exclusive economic zone, so that's 200 nautical miles off the coast, um, or through the UN law of the seas, of which Canada is a party. Seven of the eight Arctic nations are a party to UNCLOSE, the law of the seas. The outlier there is the United States. Um, and what that law does is lay the foundation for how much of the ocean, um, those shipping routes, and anything that is underneath the seabed, so that could be minerals, um, it could be clams, other things that bury into the sand, um, but who has those rights? So countries are able to um, give over scientific evidence that has been collected by expeditions over many years to the UN body that oversees the law of the seas, Um, And then that body makes a decision about how much of the continental shelf that your nation state sits on extends out into the ocean. And how they determine that scientifically means how much of the ocean you could, quote unquote, claim for things like sea routes and for for any of those minerals under the sea. Um, Currently... There are three sea routes uh, through the Arctic, only one of which is is being used, and that's the northern sea route, which is the one that hugs the Russian coastline. Um, and that's the one that will continue to see the most play over the next few years um, because it is the most easily accessible in terms of where sea ice is forming. Um, and it's also... Uh, an already predetermined route that ships have been traveling through over the past five years or so. Um, 2012 saw a really huge boost in um, shipping through that specific sea route with, I think, more than 1 or 1.2 million tons um, transited through that sea route in 2012. It hasn't gotten quite up to that Since then, this past year, there were 19 vessels that transited through, and I think something like 200,000, I think more than 200,000 tons um, of cargo did the full transit between Europe and Asia um, or the other way around. But we haven't really seen those numbers since 2012. And I think that highlights an important point to make about Arctic shipping 
is that although ice is melting and we're seeing a 30-year trend of sea ice retreat, the the law of the land in the Arctic is uncertainty, um, and that's never good for shipping. So while there are routes like the Northern Sea Route that would cut a third of the distance between Northwest Europe and the Far East for getting that cargo through. Um, you also have to take into account that um, extreme weather events, the uncertainty of charted sea ice, um, where it is and what risk that uh, poses on uh, ships and also the port infrastructure that isn't quite there yet in the Arctic all make it a bit difficult for the new Suez of the North to kind of emerge. It's going to take a bit longer. I do think we'll continue to see ships um, more and more in the Arctic, um, but I, it's a bit tempered from what I think people were hopeful of seeing in 2012 when we saw that big boost. So how is this uncertainty and the expansion of economic interests in the Arctic affecting the relationships between members? So it is both providing opportunities for cooperation and also some contention between um, Arctic states and also indigenous peoples. So um one issue that it was just resolved by the five literal states, so those that um, that are uh, coastal to the Arctic Ocean and a few other countries um, that are near Arctic states, um, is uh, fishing in the central Arctic Ocean. Um, so that could have been a point of contention as you had more vessels going through the Arctic. There was an increased potential for uh, fishing, which is quite lucrative. Um, and seeing that as a potential challenge um, to conservation efforts, to research on fisheries, um, to the potential of those ecosystems being at risk, both from vessels coming through and uh, rapid environmental changes, um, all Arctic coastal states got together and just this past week in Washington, D.C., were able to negotiate a moratorium on fishing for, I think, the next 15 years. We should look that up. Um, but uh, for a period of time, so research could be done on those ecosystems and decisions could be made about how many ships could transit through. So there's there are opportunities like fishing where Countries can come together and make active decisions um, to ensure that uh, ecosystems are safe and that as we see these rapid changes, um, conflicts on illegal fishing, as an example that we see in the other pole um, in the, the south, aren't going to be reiterated in the north. There are challenges and opportunities between Arctic states, as we've discussed, but uh, these new opportunities are also implicating other states like Singapore, China, South Korea, Japan. So these states have begun uh, joining the Arctic Council as observers. Um, they don't have decision-making power, but they do have a seat at the table. So how is this uh, participation by non-Arctic states in Arctic governance and Arctic affairs interacting with both the Arctic states and uh, Arctic relations as a whole? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. And the, the fisheries agreement that I just mentioned um, also includes states like Japan and South Korea that are uh, big in industries of shipping um, and fishing. And we're able to come together with Arctic states um, and negotiate that. As you said, um, there are many countries, non-Arctic countries, that are observer states in the Arctic Council. And while they don't have voting power, um, like the eight Arctic states and five indigenous peoples organizations, they are able to have a seat at the table, um, able to make presentations. And importantly, many of these countries have Arctic bases where they do scientific research, whether that's India, who um, is doing research on how climate change in the Arctic is affecting monsoon seasons in Southeast Asia, um, to cooperation between China and Finland. Um, and we're seeing that increase. So there's definitely an increase in science diplomacy. Uh, of course, the, the consequence of that um, is that countries like China are hopeful that that scientific diplomacy buys them good faith in Arctic countries as they um, push the Arctic as a, a new silk road that they're able to get their cargo to Western markets cheaper and more quickly. So there's a, a very strong and a historic connection between things like science diplomacy in the North and more geopolitical aims and marrying the two. We saw this a lot during the Cold War and in a, a different framework, you could see the same thing playing out now with observer states and doing goodwill um, scientific or um, providing resources for indigenous peoples to attend meetings in hopes that that will kind of secure them a, a good, good uh, outlook of countries when they are making decisions about shipping, about things like fishing when the moratorium is lifted. Um, and that's what I'm, I'm talking about here is very much state-to-state -state relations. These are all um, right, state-sponsored science diplomacy or universities that have um, bases that are supported by public funds. There's also the private sector of many non-Arctic countries that are making investments in the Arctic. And those, uh, I would argue, uh, have a lot more... Uh, contentions um, and more uncertainty around them. So um, uh, Chinese companies, as an example, who are pushing for development in Greenland um, or um, industrial development in Greenland or in Iceland um, in terms of mining or smelting, um, things that are heavy heavy industry, that's an entirely different realm. And there you run into challenges of uh, high environmental standards and um, high worker standards and public health uh, that I think are big questions that probably deserve more research and more people um, being engaged in that decision-making to ensure that as non-Arctic private industry moves in, that they don't make the same mistakes as Arctic states did when they moved north in a bit of an imperial way um, with mining operations and others that didn't quite get to a high enough public health or environmental or basic human rights standard that they, they should have. 
We'll conclude our conversation with Victoria Herman right after a quick break. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. We really have to insist that we need a relationship between Canada and Russia in the Arctic. Almost half of the North is Russian, 25% is Canadian. But between us, we control three quarters of the North. And preventing scientists from these countries from talking to one another is irrational. Our government wishes to be rational. We wish to establish links with Russia cautiously because we believe that that serves the interests of Canadians, of Russians, others like those in Ukraine and Syria. Our policy of engagement doesn't mean agreement, but we are working tirelessly to both hold Russia to account and to begin conversations. That was Pamela Goldsmith-Jones, Parliamentary Secretary to Stefan Dion, who at the time was acting as Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs. This statement, prepared by Dion for the 20th anniversary of the Ottawa Declaration and the formation of the Arctic Council, stresses the importance of cooperation with Russia in the Arctic. Speaking of this gravitational interest that's bringing a lot more diverse players to the scene, how has this affected security? Specifically, how do NATO countries interact over this issue? And what security concerns are most prevalent now? So it's, it's important to note here that um, when we talk about Arctic security, there are kind of two discussions that go on. There's the Arctic Council, where uh, you cannot talk about security issues or military issues. So there's a whole realm of the Arctic that we talked about a bit earlier in the conversation that is focused on cooperation and non-military discussions. Um, The flip side of that is NATO and, on the other side, Russia. And that breaks us down inevitably into a binary discussion um, that kind of mimics the Cold War insofar as who is at the table and who is discussing security issues. While there are some joint military operations between the East and the West, primarily those uh, security discussions are happening on that East-West divide. Um, And there are many, many uh, security challenges, but I think one of the ones that you see across both the East and the West is the, the basic security issue of search and rescue. You're talking about an enormous uh, geographic space that is very sparsely populated, that has very harsh uh, environmental conditions, and that if something went wrong, there isn't a, a huge amount of infrastructure in order to address that. So if one of those ships that we were talking about earlier, either the Crystal Serenity, the luxury liner that was going in the northern uh, the North American Arctic, or one of those oil tankers, uh, a cargo ship that was going through the northern sea route. If something were to happen to those tourists or to that cargo, search and rescue is a tremendous security issue of who can get there first and who could mitigate that disaster. Um, and that's something that you see constant um 
constantly in NATO discussions, um, in Russia's security discussions as well. Um, but that's a, a big issue that continues to kind of dominate the security um, the security dialogues that are happening now in the Arctic. Of course, beyond that, you have um, people in in Western countries, particularly places like Norway um, and in the European Arctic, conscious that Russia is um, continuing to reman their military bases from the Cold War, in part in order to create that infrastructure for shipping routes. The uh, Russian North is incredibly important to the uh, the economic plan for the future of Russia, and they want to ensure that they have the people and the infrastructure to um, to address any challenges that come with relying so heavily on that geography. Um, but of course, they are still rearming military bases. There are still illegal flyovers over Norwegian airspace. Um, those issues are constantly um, being discussed, and there are constantly joint practices between NATO countries to ensure that um, defense is still a top priority in the Arctic. And even within Canada, you saw that um, recently with the, um, the discussions that came out of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and his new defense policy, um, ensuring that Arctic sovereignty plays a, a part, particularly in its airspace, um, in terms of providing more vehicles, more surveillance, a general and overall presence in the Arctic, um, which I think people were unsure if that would continue under uh, Trudeau. Harper uh, did have a... Uh, healthy, unhealthy uh, obsession with the, the Arctic, um, particularly around sovereignty and around um, the, the military ensuring that that sovereignty was upheld. And you can see within Canada that that will continue to be uh, a strong part of the, the new defense policy. Do you believe that the Arctic will become more militarized in the future? Could you give us some insights into perhaps what we can expect in the Arctic region in the next few decades? So I, I don't believe that the Arctic region will become more militarized in the future. Um, I think that since the, the end of the Cold War, we have seen continued cooperation amongst all Arctic states. Um, and as we just saw this past week with the fisheries agreement that um, issues that are arising now for the future that could turn into very contentious issues are being addressed early on. Um, so I do think that we'll continue to see cooperation. Does that mean that there will not be security issues? No, of course, there, there will be. There are always geopolitical tensions and security risks in any um, geography across the world. So those will continue to exist. They'll continue to evolve, to morph into new challenges throughout the next few decades. But I think that to, to view the Arctic as a place that will become militarized, I think there is uh, a strong transition that has happened over the last 20 years to focus on 
human security of the people who live in the Arctic and ensuring that they um, they are living the best lives possible um, versus what the the Cold War was really about um, securing the Arctic as a flyover space uh, for risks to Canadian and American cities further south. Um, so even then in that militarization that happened in the 1950s and 1960s, um, that push for uh, infrastructure like the distant early warning line um, was all about securing spaces further south. So to the extent today that we would see an increase in uh, militarization, a real movement to arm the north, um, I think is a bit out of the the current trajectory of where countries are investing. They're investing in the Arctic as an economic potential, um, as a, a place that has 4 million people in it that uh, is only growing now. Um, so I think that those those will really be the drivers of the Arctic future rather than the military. Um, but I do, again, uh, of course, there will be some security issues that as the Arctic changes, so so too will that conversation. So I guess to close out our conversation today, what's kind of lingering with me is, through your observation, what elements from Arctic cooperation do you think could be effectively replicated or mimicked to other geopolitical issues? I think that the one place that could certainly benefit from the Arctic is other discussions about climate change. So the the Arctic um, the Arctic Council as a governance body does a tremendous job of bringing together nation states and indigenous peoples organizations in a way that, like I said a bit earlier, really no one else does, um, and that has benefited. Uh, everyone involved and particularly the the programs, the projects and the, the binding agreements that have come out of that body. So if we were to be able to take that governance model and to transform it into uh, comparable governance models for other hot issues like climate change in the rest of the world, things like uh, climate migration, loss and damage, that could be uh, a really great way to take lessons from the, the past 20 years of Arctic cooperation and expand them into new geographies. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Herman. I think that you have given us many things to think about. Thank you so much for your insights. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Have a great evening. Thanks, you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. On behalf of the entire team here at Policy Talks, I would like to thank the Carleton University Graduate Students Association for sponsoring our podcast. They provide us with the means to bring you the quality content that we do. In addition to sponsoring us, they're also a great organization and resource center for Carleton students, and you can visit their website at gsacarleton.ca. Of course, this episode was also made possible thanks to the hard work of our awesome production team, Mark Hyken, Rukia Mohammed, Mohammed Galaluddin, Stephen Cook, Samran Roy, and Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Bridget. And I'm Nicole. And this is Policy Talks. Mm-hmm.